If you could please turn with me, if you have your scriptures with you this evening, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter number 1, as Chris mentioned, it is our first official sermon on Advent. And for those unfamiliar, as a reminder, Advent simply just means arrival. It means coming. And we probably don't use that term very much anymore. It's not a, not a term that we see spoken or read, but you can think of things arriving or coming when you think of things like the iPhone. Everybody has a smartphone. There was the advent of the iPhone, the advent of the smartphone that changed society, that changed how we interacted with one another, that changed how we navigated this world, how we connected to everyone across this world. You have the advent of the internet, also something that just changed the complexity of the world and everything about it. When we use the term, specifically within the Christian context, the advent specifically, we think of the coming of Jesus Christ. And the advent that we reflect on in the past is his first coming, that he came as a baby. That's why we celebrate this time. That's why we set aside time during Christmas to celebrate the Advent, because it's the coming of Jesus Christ, and more so than the iPhone ever did, more so than the internet ever did, Jesus coming to this earth completely changed all of history. And so we celebrate and we reflect on the Advent, anticipating another Advent, another arrival, another coming, when Jesus Christ comes in the flesh and he brings us home. And so we celebrate Christmas and we have our traditions. We have all the different things that we do. We listen to our Christmas songs. We bake cookies. We spend time with family, hopefully. We have all of our traditions that we would have. We watch the same movies every year. All of you have your favorites, whether it's the Christmas Carol, the Christmas Story. My favorite is um, Elizabeth. What's the name of it? I can't remember. It's a Wonderful Life. There you go. That's my favorite. I couldn't remember the name of it. Wonderful Life. Best Christmas movie out there. There's really no argument about that, by the way. Um, In case anyone would like to argue that. And yet when we come to the text of Scripture, we recognize that all those traditions, all those things are good, they're helpful, they're fun, but they pale in comparison to the real reason why we celebrate this time. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. We celebrate Jesus. And so when we come to Luke Luke is a narrative. It's, it's written to explain in detail the things that have happened at the very first Christmas event. And it's interesting as we get into the record that Luke records for us, the record of Jesus' advent in Luke focuses primarily on two people, Elizabeth and Mary. God's about to change the course of history. The most important three decades in human history are about to begin. The birth all the way through the life and the death of Jesus Christ spanned about 30 years. Those three decades. And where do we see God? At the beginning stages of this, we see God not occupying himself with kings, not occupying himself with the richest and the most famous people in the world, not occupying himself with the most influential religious leaders, not the proud, not the arrogant, not the high, He focuses his attention to two obscure, humble women. One old, barren, never able to have children. The other young, a virgin, maybe 13 to 15 years old. 
And that should be a reminder for us as we contemplate what Jesus has done through Christ that God uses those who are low and humble. Repeatedly, through what he's done, he, he uses those in society that the world will look at and say, you're not worth much, and yet that's who he targets. That's who he uses. He doesn't tell the king of Israel, the Messiah will come from your family. He doesn't tell the religious leaders of Israel, the Messiah will come from your family. Instead, he goes to a 13-year-old girl who's never been with a man, unmarried, poor, and says, you will be the one that bears the Messiah. He occupies himself with two women, and he leads Luke to write these detailed accounts of how he interacts with them, and it's so that generation after generation after generation would read these words and recognize what God has done for these women and the faith that they had to trust their God that he was doing what he promised that he would do. We see God here interacting with two women. And if we remember the text of Luke chapter 1, we would begin in Luke 1. We won't read all of it. We'll really focus our attention on verses 46 to 55. But if we recall this story, Elizabeth is married to her husband, Zechariah, and Elizabeth has never been able to have a child, something she's likely desired, something she's wanted in her life, and just never been able to happen. And yet God comes to Elizabeth and Zechariah and says, you will have a son. The child that you've always wanted, you'll have, and you'll call him John. And we understand him to be John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. Mary is visited by an angel sometime after that, after Elizabeth finds out she's pregnant with a son and he's growing inside of her. An angel comes to Mary and says, you too will have a son. You too will have a son and he is the prophesied one. He is the Messiah, the one who I told Eve about, the one that I told Abraham about, the one that I told David about. You will carry that son. Luke tells us how Mary hearing this news, she travels to see her cousin Elizabeth. And when she comes to Elizabeth, before any words are even spoken, before Mary even mentions the fact that she's pregnant, Elizabeth says to her, blessed are you among women. Why, do, why have I been given this privilege to have the mother of my Lord visit me? The Bible records for us, and Luke says that the baby actually leaps in Elizabeth's womb. You can imagine if you've, if you've been a woman here and you've had children, you understand what a baby would do in moving around and kicking and all of those things. Imagine Elizabeth saying, this one was different. This wasn't a normal kick. This baby was doing somersaults in there, doing something. But he says this baby leaps for joy at just the presence of Mary. John, the Baptist, would go and foretell. He's the one who's preparing the way for the Lord. He prepared the way for Jesus Christ before he was even born. From the womb, he's telling and testifying of Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful testimony of faith it is even from Elizabeth, because like I said, there's, there's no indication from the text that Mary ever says to her, you, you know I'm carrying the Messiah, Right? Filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth reacts this way and exclaims, you are blessed among women. Why is this granted to me? What humility 
from her. What humility from this woman to stand there and look at, look at the mother of the Messiah, not with jealousy, not with envy. There was no anger. There was no frustration that the child that she longed for for so many years, not being able to have a child, and yet here's this young 13 to 15-year-old girl who has a baby living inside of her so soon. There's no disbelief of Mary's story when she's told. There's no accusations that Mary, you're just living in sin. There's no gossiping that, that what Mary's done, she's not going around telling all of the town people and all of the other women about what Mary's done. Elizabeth is humble. She's respectful. She's encouraging. She's caring. She's affirming to Mary. And I think it's important for us to, to reflect on the character of that woman and say, what a joy it is when we have individuals in our lives who are like that. What a wonderful thing it is to have someone in your life and a valuable thing it is that someone in your life that when you're going through difficulties in your life, when you're going through uncertain circumstances, that they meet you with grace. They don't meet you with accusation. They don't meet you with anger. They meet you with grace. What an excellent friend that is. I would encourage you, if you have someone in your life that you think, this person's like that for me. They're, they're an Elizabeth in my life. Encourage them. Let them know how much they mean to you because that's an encouragement for them. Not, not trying to boast egos, not trying to puff people up, but just to say, you mean something to me. You are valuable to me. And I love that God has gifted you in a way that has gifted me, that's given me grace, that's helped me. Friendships like that are not common. They're not common enough. And, and I think we would benefit as a church if, if we grew in this area, if we improved in how we respond to those who are going through uncertainties and difficulties so that our, our perspective and our point of view towards those people is one that's filled with grace, it's filled with compassion, it's filled with kindness. We also reflect on this interaction. We have to think, what a wonderful confirmation for Mary. And angels just visited her tells her, you've never been with a man, but you're pregnant. Oh, and by the way, the child you're going to grow inside of you is the Messiah, the promised one. At this point in the story, we're not informed that anyone knows that Mary's pregnant and that the first words that she hears are those very words, blessed are you among women. What affirmation God brings to Mary's heart. She's traveled four days from her home in Nazareth down to see Elizabeth. And in those four days, we don't know what transpired. We don't know what was said. But the first recorded words we hear are an affirmation of what God is doing for Mary. You can imagine the things that are going around in her mind, and yet God gives her this encouragement. And he moves Mary to, to say these words. They're on the screen, and I'll read them for us. We read them earlier. It says, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I wonder in the midst of circumstances how Mary could find that joy. Imagine the emotional state she's going through at this point. She's a teenage girl. She needs to tell her fiancé, Joseph, that she's pregnant, but she's never actually been with a man. He could divorce her. He could drag her out into the streets and have her killed by the town people. Surely she will be ridiculed. She will be treated poorly. Her family will likely disown her. No one's going to believe her. Her situation could not be more difficult. Her status could not be humbler, and yet this is a woman with no special skills, no resume, no lineage, no wealth, no prestige. She's nothing special, and yet she can say, in the midst of all of this, my soul magnifies the Lord. He who is mighty has done a great thing for me. How can she say that? And yet we look at it and we reflect on the fact that it's simply because of her faith. She believes with full confidence that God is for her and that God favors her. Not because of something she's done, but simply because of the mercy that he has for her. She believes that salvation belongs to God and to God alone. And she believes that this God who has mercy for her will keep his promises to her and to her people. She has a bedrock, a foundation of faith that says, my God is for me. And so I can say in the midst of craziness, in the midst of the worst circumstances you can imagine, I can confidently say, my soul magnifies the Lord. I praise the name of the God who is my Savior. I think this song, as we have looked at, also reflects the fact that she understands her Bible. If we went back into the Old Testament, we don't have the text on the screen, but there's a story in 1 Samuel, if you recall, a woman named Hannah. Hannah was a married, adored woman. Her husband gave her double blessings. Her husband loved her. She was adored by him. She's married. She loves God, and yet the one thing she wants in all the world is a child, and she is unable to have a child. This was painful for her, not only because she wasn't able to have a child, but there were people who would mock and ridicule her that put her down because of her inability to have a child. This story goes on in 1 Samuel, and Hannah actually prays desperately that God would gift her for a child. And if we read carefully that story, the Bible the Scripture actually says that God is the one who closed up her womb. It was no accident that she was childless. And yet, after she prays, God, it says, remembers her. And God is working on something greater than Hannah would even realize. Because in remembering Hannah, she soon, become, she soon becomes pregnant and she has a son. And if you remember the story, his, his name is Samuel. He leads the nation of Israel for decades. He's the one who anoints the king, David. He's the one who happens to have his name graced two books of the Bible, First and Second Samuel. Something that Hannah could have never pictured, never realized it wasn't in her plans, and yet God, in his good purposes, saw fit to do even greater than what Hannah could realize. And she says this 
in 1 Samuel chapter 2, again, I don't have the text up on the screen, she says these words, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, there is none beside you, there is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, and she has many children. In, and she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he sets the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful one for the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? There are so many parallels between the song that Hannah states in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and what Mary sings in Luke chapter 1. It's not word for word, but I think what it suggests is that Mary knew her Bible. She understood this text. And so when she was coming through one of the most incredibly emotional, traumatic, stressful things in her life, she comes back to scripture that she remembers. We can see some of the parallels. Both Hannah and Mary exalt God for what he's done for them. They both, tell, they both say salvation only comes from God. Salvation is brought about by a holy God. God is a holy God. God exalts the humble and those who are low, but the arrogant he will scatter. In the midst of this emotional roller coaster, Mary's on her response is to recall scripture and give praise back to God. I think this should be a challenge for us. When we face the uncertainties and the difficulties of this life, where do we turn? Do we reflect on the greatness and the holiness and the power of God? Do we look and remember what God has promised and where he said he would lead us and where he said he would help us? Do we, we look to the future and the hope that he's given us that says, I will right all wrongs? Do we look to those things in the midst of our distress? Because it's easy for us when we face circumstances in life to never turn to God, to never turn to Scripture, never go to the one in life who will never disappoint. And so I think when we read Mary's words in Luke 1, we should be encouraged and challenged that when we're going through the deepest distresses of life, turn back to God, turn back to Scripture, reflect on what we know and give God praise for what he's done. When I read these songs of praise, I can't help but reflect that while the circumstances are extremely different, especially in Luke chapter 1, uniquely different, the song is essentially the same for our lives. Our soul magnifies the Lord. Our spirit rejoices because God is our salvation. He has looked on our humble position, what, as sinners. 
He's forgiven us of that sin. He's given us eternal life. And so just as Mary can say that she is blessed, we too can say that we're blessed. Everything Mary lays out is why Christmas is not just the tradition we follow. It's not just a good time to get together with family. We have traditions. We decorate for Christmas. We, we can and should spend time with family. But the ultimate reason we set aside this time is to reflect on Jesus Christ and what he's done. Because he has blessed us incredibly. And I think Mary's song provides us with this framework, this beautiful, rich detail for a few things to reflect on. So with the remainder of our time, that's what I want to do. I just want to reflect on three different things. Help us to recall and remember these things as we consider the rest of this year and and what Jesus has done. The first one is that our God who is mighty and holy, has the power to do miracles. You look back at verse 37, if you have your text with you, it's not on the screen. Gabriel, this is the last words Gabriel speaks to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. The creator of this world who has the power to flood the world, to part seas, to part rivers, to make the sun stand still, he has the same power to give an old barren woman a son, He has the same power to take a young virgin woman and give her a son. We sometimes gloss over this thing of the virgin birth. You know, it's just part of the story. It's a cute part of this thing. It's it's we we sing Christmas carols about it. We have our nativity scenes up. It it just is a cute part of this Christmas story. Yet, do we ever ponder what the virgin birth actually means? Never before had this event, and never after it would it ever occur, that a virgin woman would conceive and have a child. It's never happened before Mary. It'll never happen after Mary. It's unashamedly supernatural. It's defiantly supernatural. It defies our rationalism. It it doesn't make sense. Our minds can't understand how a child ended up in Mary's body, yet it's significant because in the virgin birth, what we find is that there is humanity and deity united together. Fully human, fully divine natures united in one person that is Jesus Christ. Because in the virgin birth, what we see is that we have a normal, natural human birth where a mother gives birth to a child, but that child was conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's where humanity and divinity meet. And so it's significant because we do have oftentimes wonder, like, do we need to actually believe this? Is this something that we have to believe? After all, it doesn't make sense. It's not rational. It doesn't compute with what we know of nature It doesn't make sense that Mary could be pregnant in this way, so could it possibly just be an added effect to the story? Maybe it's just made up. What difference does it make if I don't believe this? And I think our response to that would be it makes all the difference in the world. Without the virgin birth, we don't have the gospel. Without the virgin birth, we do not have God become flesh. Without the virgin birth, the Bible is simply a hoax. Without the virgin birth, what do we have but a young, sexually immoral girl who raised an illegitimate son, convinced him that he was the God of this world, and then joined in his religion, lying to everyone who followed him. Without the virgin birth, that's what we have. 
Without the virgin birth, Mary is a con artist, and Jesus is complicit with that. So yes, it matters if we believe this or not. It matters if Jesus was conceived supernaturally, miraculously. To say it doesn't matter is to say the gospel doesn't matter. And to say it doesn't matter strips God of the power and the ability to act supernaturally, to come into our world and do what he wishes. After all, this is God's initiative, is it not? This is God's initiative to bring the human life of Jesus into this world in a supernatural way, to unite human and divine into one person. And I think what it shows in the virgin birth is humanity's ultimate need for redemption and salvation. Humanity can't save itself. Humanity can't produce a Messiah. People can't produce a redeemer for themselves because implicit in the virgin birth is that sin has corrupted all of us. Sin has passed from Adam to all generations. And so a savior that comes from that same line of Adam would be corrupted with sin. So for Jesus to have been born from natural conception, if he was just the product of Mary and Joseph having a sexual relationship, it would destroy his ability to be an acceptable sacrifice for sin. The virgin birth highlights that Jesus did not come from Mary. Rather, he came, as the Bible says, as the new Adam, the better Adam, who instead of bringing sin into this world actually brings life, he brings hope, he brings forgiveness. So if we were to say, what does the virgin birth matter? It's not a big deal. What we're saying is the gospel doesn't matter. What we're saying is there is no sacrifice for sin. And if we deny the virgin birth, we're denying that we even have life. We even have hope. We even have forgiveness. And that's the other supernatural, miraculous thing that God has done. God has given Mary, in a supernatural, miraculous way, has given Mary a child, though she's a virgin. But the other supernatural thing that God has done is he has brought salvation into the world. He has done the impossible. Humanity, dead in sin, facing a just punishment for sin, and God sends himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to save a sinful world. That should be impossible. It should confound our minds. 